Hi, my name is Pastor Scott, and it's a pleasure to be bringing this Advent sermon to you today. As most of you probably are aware, we did not have church this past Sunday due to not having any electricity. And so we're bringing this special uh, sermon to you today so that it will be a part of the whole Advent series to start you off in getting ready for Christmas. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that nobody was seriously hurt um, to the point of uh, their life being endangered in that accident. And we pray for those young men that not only will you bring physical healing, but also that you will bring them to know you and to love you with all of their hearts. This morning, as we open your word, would your spirit just speak through me and bless our church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to be focusing on Advent and specifically on hope, but if you're not familiar with Advent, let me briefly explain what it is. Well, first of all, let me tell you what Advent is not. Advent is not a calendar with little cardboard doors behind which are uh, little surprises of chocolate. Advent is the season of the year that leads up to Christmas. The word Advent is actually a Latin word, and if you break it down into the two parts, Ad is Latin for to, and vent is Latin for come. So it would very simply be to come, and what it means is an arrival or an appearing or coming into place. And of course, the arrival that we're focusing on is the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus being born as a baby, coming to earth to be the bridge between sinful people and a holy God. The Advent season lasts for four Sundays, and it begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas or the one that is nearest to November 30th, and then Advent ends on Christmas Eve. Today and for the next three Sundays, we will be focusing on hope, peace, love, and joy. Now today, our Advent focus is on hope, and let me give you just a little bit of an illustration of what hope means. A self-made millionaire named Eugene Lang brought hope to a group of young students who were graduating from elementary school, uh, and they desperately needed hope. This was a class of 59 kids in East Harlem in 1981, and he wondered what he could say to them that would mean the most, because he realized that statistics and history told him that of those 59 students, probably less than half of them would stay in school long enough to graduate from high school. So he scrapped the notes that he had prepared and instead just gave a talk from his heart. And he told them, stay in school, and if you graduate from high school, I will help pay your way through college. That moment changed the lives of those students forever. For the first time, They had hope. Years later, one of those students said, I had something to look forward to now, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And guess what? Nearly 90% of those students graduated from high school. We all need hope, don't we? Best-selling American evangelical author Hal Lindsey wrote, Man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but only one minute without hope. 
the intertestamental period, which is the time between the prophet of Malachi and the coming of Jesus, was a time when hope was desperately needed. Those 400 years were also known as the silent years because it appeared that God was no longer speaking to his people. Also, the Jewish people no longer had autonomous rule and were under the authority of the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And there was also a short reign between the Greek and Roman empires where a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes ruled with an iron thumb. He overthrew the rightful line of the priesthood, and he desecrated the temple, defiling it with unclean animals and a pagan altar. All of this was the backdrop before Jesus came to earth. God's people desperately needed the Messiah to come. They were desperately praying for the Messiah to come. They needed hope. Today, I think we live in a time of fear. Fear of escalating violence. Fear of being able to afford the basic necessities in life. Fear of of what our children may be exposed to. And we may be, should I say, we should be praying desperately for Jesus to come back. So maybe our situation is not so different from the situation of two people that we're going to read about today in Luke chapter 2. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 22 and read through verse 38. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is, the Messiah, Jesus. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And Jesus' father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks, 
give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, because God, through his Holy Spirit, was communicating to Simeon and Anna that his, this helpless little baby was the Messiah, their hope was restored. They had been given this hope by God, and it is what kept them believing in God's promise, even into old age and even into a time of Roman occupation. Can you relate to that feeling? The feeling of needing hope? We had hoped that COVID-19 would not spread or change our lives as drastically as it did. We had hoped that our businesses would make it through without having to lay people off or even worse, closing. We had hoped that our nation would come together rather than becoming more fractured. We had hoped that our marriages would last, even be strengthened. We had hoped that our children would follow Jesus passionately. Maybe you were hoping that your Thanksgiving would be with your whole family or for a Christmas together with everyone getting along. The name of this feeling of being let down is disappointment, and long-term disappointment leads to despair. This week begins the Advent season, and, and as I said before, we are focusing on hope. Now, we tend to think of the opposite of hope as despair. You probably suspected this, that, uh, and let me confirm to you that since the year 2000, the suicide rates have climbed 30% and are climbing again since the pandemic. I heard a group of sociologists recently said that the primary American emotion today is disappointment. Part of that is what sociologists call the myth of progress. We Americans, particularly if you are from the middle class, expect the quality of life to always be rising. Some therapists call this the gospel of upward mobility, which can be a cause of a hidden trauma in life. When life is viewed through the lens of secularism, what I mean by that is without God in the picture, suffering has no role or meaning in our purpose of life. So when we encounter a health crisis or death or unemployment or the end of a relationship, we have no meaning to assign to our pain. Sociologists also use this formula. Happiness equals reality minus our expectations. Now here's the irony. When your expectation is that you will have a life of ease and upward mobility, life becomes very hard. Because in reality, life is full of suffering and setbacks. Is that pessimism? I don't think so. I think it's reality. Maybe you can relate to the line from the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, when it says, The weary world rejoices. Or at least you might be relating to the weary part. The pain you may have experienced this year, or maybe even the past few years, and the secret gift that comes with it, is that so many of the things that we have put our hope in have let us down. Now, let me explain. We put our hope in the myth of progress. But I would venture to guess that very few of us feel that this November is significantly better than last November. We can't put our hope in politicians any more than we can put our hope in any other person. People will always disappoint us. You might even put your hope in the church, but it turns out we too are human and fragile. 
For many people, their, their hope when it came to a global pandemic was set on finding a working vaccine. Boris Johnson, in an interview from the United Kingdom where he serves in their parliament, said, and I quote, This could, and I stress could, really be the salvation for humanity, these vaccines, end quote. Now, I know that was just meant to be a figure of speech, but I think it's also a bit of a Freudian slip. While vaccines can do a lot of good, no vaccine can offer salvation for humanity. Are you feeling disappointment today, possibly even despair? What if your disappointment turned out to be something good in your life? What if disappointment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope has been set on the wrong object? After all, hope must have an object. It must have something or someone to attach itself to. What if disappointment comes with this gentle invitation from God to recenter where our heart's desire is? In other words, have I put my hope in the wrong object? A synonym to disappointment is disillusionment, which we think of as a bad thing. But let's parse out that word, dis and illusionment. To be disillusioned, then, is to be disavowed of our illusions. That means we have to face reality, and that's not a bad thing. Remember, Satan's specialty is illusion. Lust versus love. Materialism versus contentment. What if when we feel disillusionment, rather than asking, why has God let me down? What if we were to ask instead, where was I living an illusion? Where was my hope placed in the wrong object? Now, I wish it was as simple as just saying that as followers of Jesus, our hope is in him and he will never let us down. When we read the stories of Simeon and Anna, we're only reading the last lines of their stories. We don't know all the, of the emotions that they had lived through. Remember, they were both old and, and near the end of a long life. They had waited for and prayed for years for God to send the Messiah, and it may have even seemed as if it wasn't going to happen in their lifetime. In a way, this reminds me of the story of the two obscure disciples on the road to Emmaus. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles again, uh, we're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke, but turn towards the end of that book to chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, this is after Jesus had been crucified and buried. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Jesus they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. Did you notice in that story that one of the disciples was mentioned by name, but that's the only thing that we know about him. And the other one, we don't even know his name. Perhaps this was a a literary move on Dr. Luke's part to prompt the readers, including us today, to imagine ourselves as one of those two little-known disciples. I think we all have a time in our life when we feel let down by God, just as these disciples on the road did. This is why so many first century Jews rejected Jesus and refused to believe because they felt that Jesus had let them down. Because he didn't rally an army. Because he didn't defeat Rome. He didn't campaign for lower taxes in the name of justice. And this was a time when some historians believe that the tax rate was as high as 80 to 90 percent, and the vast majority of Israel was living hand to mouth on their own land due to Rome's oppression. Jesus came from heaven, he went back to heaven, and Rome was still in power. And many people rejected Jesus because he did not prove to be the kind of Messiah that they had hoped for. What we need is what Paul in Romans 5 calls a hope that does not disappoint us. So let's define this. What exactly is hope? And how do we keep hope alive in troubled times? Well, first we need to distinguish from how the word hope is used in our society versus how it's used in Scripture. To us, Hope means a couple of things. It could mean wishful thinking. I hope that it's not raining when church lets out. I hope it snows on Christmas, but not too much. I I hope that I get a year-end bonus. Or hope may actually be positive thinking, a kind of optimism that the best is yet to come. 
Now, none of that is bad, though it's not necessarily based in reality. But it's not the way that hope is used in Scripture. Here's a working definition of hope in Scripture. The expectation of coming good based on the person and the promises of God. It's a kind of emotional energy that's based in the future, but is fuel for the present. Eugene Peterson, a pastor, scholar, theologian, and author, wrote this about hope. Hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has to do with the future, but it is a virtue which is cultivated in the present. It fills the present with energy. It connects these two comings of Jesus, his birth and his second coming, so that we are now participating in them. We're not just remembering the one and believing in the other. We are participating in the continuity of these two things. Now, that means that hope, like Advent, is all about what God is doing now as much as an anticipation of what God is going to do in the future. All people are hope-based creatures. Unlike animals, survival is not enough for us. We need hope that things will get better. As Martin Luther once said, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. The question is not, do you hope, but what do you put your hope in? As I said before, hope must have an object. As Christ followers, our hope is not based in a generic sense of optimism, nor is it in the stability of our government or a rising standard of living. All of that can and will let us down. Our hope must be in God. But to just say my hope is in God is not enough because it's easy to bring our own wishful thinking into that statement. So let me sketch out a biblical theology of hope in three parts. First, our hope is that Jesus will return to make all things new. That, in the language of Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The prophet Isaiah said something very similar. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And the Apostle Paul put it this way. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? That is hope. Many people today have lost sight of the hope of the second coming of Jesus. This is what's called an over-realized eschatology. It's an emphasis on the present over the things that have not yet come about. This is a typical mindset of young Christians. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying that today's millennials and Gen Z Christians don't have good theology. What I am saying is that when we are young and relatively healthy, we don't consider the future like we do as we get older and more of our life is seen in the rearview mirror than viewed through the windshield. I myself think about 
far more about Jesus' return and about heaven than I did when I was in my 20s. I believe this has always been true. I believe that Christ followers who today are under the age of 30 will think more about the second coming of Christ and about heaven when they're 50 and above, assuming that Jesus hasn't come back by then. Hope that does not look to the future promised by God to those who love him is not Christian hope at all. It's more like secular humanism with a twist of Christianity thrown in. As the Apostle Paul put it, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The writings of the New Testament are just saturated with Jesus' return. If you read through the New Testament in the new year, and I would greatly encourage you to do that, the hope of Jesus' return is throughout all of the New Testament. Unlike our secular world that has put its hope in politics, science, technology, a rising standard of living, and even hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence above all else, anything other than Jesus will not result in hope. Now, should we try to alleviate suffering in our world? Yes, absolutely. As Christ followers, we should be leading the way. But those efforts, as wonderful as they are, cannot bring about peace on earth, which will only happen when Jesus comes back for his followers. In other words, humanity cannot self-save. We cannot save the world or even ourselves because we need to be saved from the world and ourselves. No politician, no policy, no program can do that. Humanity tries to inject a kind of messianic hope into politics or a politician, perhaps even into a medical breakthrough, yet in the end we are all let down. The gospel is that the government is on his shoulders, not ours. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Second, our hope rests in the future. But in the meantime, Jesus is with us in our present suffering. Do you know why I'm convinced that Jesus is with us in our present suffering? First of all, one of the names given to Jesus in that verse from Isaiah is Emmanuel. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. Here's another reason why I'm convinced that God is with us in our present suffering. Because Jesus himself promised in John 16, verses 6 through 7. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, going back to heaven. For if I did not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And listen to what Jesus said in that same chapter, beginning at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. 
For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the best thing in life is that through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit we have access to God the Father? We get to participate in the inner life of the Trinity in the here and now. We get to wake up in the morning and find a quiet place and look at God looking at us in love. And let His love heal us and set us free. And nothing, no suffering, no pandemic, no recession, no loss of job or a dream or a loss of a family member can take away our access to the loving presence of God. Third, our hope is that Jesus will use our suffering to form us into people of love who will live with him forever in heaven. The hope of Advent is not just about what happens when all of our dreams come true, but when our worst nightmares come true. That even then, when your suffering is most acute, it is not in vain. When the roof comes crashing down, it's good to remind ourselves of Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's also good to specifically know how God will use the difficulties and the struggles and the bad things we simply do not understand, how God will use those for good. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Our hope is that Jesus will bring good from our suffering. That doesn't mean we enjoy suffering. That's not Christianity. That's just foolishness. We are looking at the big picture with a long-term view. Our hope is twofold when it comes to the suffering we experience. First, I have hope that God will not waste my suffering because it will allow me to help other people because everyone will experience suffering in this life. This is fulfilled through those verses in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. And then secondly, we also have hope that God has a grand plan that is far bigger and far more important than the few years that we live on earth. We were all created for eternity. Let me read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. This is from the New Living Translation. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Now, there's a lot in that verse, but let me focus on the last part of it. When we suffer and then complain to God that we are suffering... Here's what's happening. First, we are focusing only on ourselves. What I mean is, why would we assume that of all the people who have ever lived, 
that we should be the only ones to not suffer. This is what happens when we live in a world that's contaminated by sin. Second, don't misinterpret Romans 8, 28 and 29 to mean that God will take away your suffering and replace it with rainbows and unicorns. God causing all things to work together for good is looking through life, looking at life through the correct end of the telescope. Let me explain what I mean. If you were to pull up a telescope and look through the small end and with the big end out in front of you, you would be able to see things far away from you in great detail. But if you turn that telescope around and look through the larger end, even things that are close up are going to be tiny and hard to see. Look at your circumstances and, yes, your suffering through God's telescope not your microscope. And third, use your circumstances, especially your suffering, to bring comfort and hope to other people. This is our hope, that Jesus came to offer sinful people reconciliation with a holy God, but also that Jesus will return for his people and will set all things right. The invitation of Advent is to set our hope back on Jesus. But Advent is not simply a season to await the coming of Christmas. It is also a time to renew and enlarge our hopes for the age that is to come, to prepare for the coming of our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us hope Hope that is not based on our circumstances, but is based on your promises and your love and your power and your ability to redeem all things and all circumstances and all people. Father, we put our hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me end this time with a benediction from Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. God bless you.